Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. How cool are hummingbirds? Hummingbirds are just these itsy-bitsy, some of them are pretty big, but overall itsy-bitsy little birds that can do amazing things. They can fly backwards, they migrate great distances, uh, they are just uber cool. And my guest today is Cindy Routledge. Cindy is a hummingbird fanatic. She is part of the Southeastern Avian Research Group in Clarksville, Tennessee. She bans hummingbirds, she studies hummingbirds, and we talk a lot about hummingbirds on this episode. So I think you're really going to enjoy the Bird Banner Podcast episode with Cindy Rutledge, where we talk hummingbirds. Help me welcome Cindy. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I heard about you from Brian Ellis, Brian Fox Ellis, the storyteller, uh, uh, Audubon, and uh, and a Darwin impersonator, not impersonator, I don't know what you call it when you uh, act as though you're somebody. Uh, but anyway, he is quite a character, and he suggested you as a guest, so I have high expectations. Uh-oh. Uh- <laughs> Well, Brian's been a friend for about um, 10 years now. Okay. Um, we actually met in Nebraska, of all places. Really? Uh, yes, we were there uh, for the Sandhill Crane Spectacular that happens every March and April along wow. the Platte River out there. And so uh, we were trying to get a Sandhill Crane Festival started here in Tennessee because we do have a growing population of Sandhill Cranes here. Mm -hmm. And um, so we went out there to to talk to the good folks out there who were had a lot of experience with festivals and and highlighting the species. And uh, that's where I met him. And um, it's sort of been a history from there. Well, help help me learn. Are the cranes? I've seen sandhill cranes where my parents used to winter in Florida, and they have resident sandhill cranes there. Correct. I believe they don't migrate. Yours are probably a migratory stopover group, or do you have residents, or what are your no. cranes? Our cranes here in Tennessee are part of the eastern population. Uh, there are three distinct populations of cranes, and um, they uh, migrate back up into Wisconsin, Minnesota, and so on and so forth to nest. But they mm-hmm. winter down here in uh, Tennessee, Alabama, um, you know, uh, where they can make a living. Right, right. A little cold up there in the winter. Right. Yeah. We have a nice wintering population of Sandhill Cranes down at the uh, Ridgefield and Woodland Bottoms area down in southwestern Washington. So it's always one of our January treks is to go down and see the cranes along with a few other things down there. So it's always fun. Yes. They're great. They're amazing birds. We also have a festival, the Othello uh, Sandhill Crane Festival here in Washington. So we've got a knot on the order of the festival in Nebraska, I know. But uh, still, we have our own little Sandhill Crane Festival. Yes, we we have there's a we had uh, we do have one in Tennessee. It's been going on for like 20 years. Um, And like I said, the population just continues to grow. And then there's a a fairly new one in Alabama at Wheeler Wildlife Refuge, which is also a wonderful place to to view cranes. And they're very lucky. They seem to have a a high population of whooping cranes that spend the winter with them down there at Wheeler. So Mm. it's a great place to see a whooping crane. Yeah, without taking a boat ride. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My uh, life whooping crane was uh, out of... uh, uh, Corpus Christi or 
Galveston, I don't remember, somewhere down right. on, on the Texas coast. In, yeah, uh, Aransas the, down there, down near Aransas, yeah. Aransas, that's where it was. And yes. my, my family uh, all uh, got terribly seasick, so they were really worried. And I kept telling them, this is nothing, it's just uh, four feet of water. The, oh, they uh, they all want to take the meclizine before we went on the trip. Well, I had to literally, they're all unconscious on the boat. I uh. stand them up to see the, sand, the <laughs> uh, whooping cranes and then put them back to sleep in their chair <laughs> go back in, so... Uh, didn't yeah. work out quite the way I thought, but it was okay. So anyway, so, that's how I met Brian. Okay, good, good. Is he as much of a character in person as he seems like he might be? He is. He, um, you never know. We like to say when Brian shows up, you never really know what character's going to show up. Um, <laughs> he does so many different ones, but um, yeah, he's, he's, he's quite the, he's got I, his, um, um, memory for facts and dates and, is incredible. It astounds me that, you know, what he can pull out of his brain some days. Very cool. I think we remember what's important to us. Like, you know, I, I sometimes will pull a fact of, about a bird out of my brain. How did I even know that? Where did that come from? I think, you know, you remember what, what is important to you. Yes. Yes. Or what you love or like. And uh, he certainly exactly. has a passion for what he does. He does. So seems like an interesting guy. Well, it sounds like you have a passion for hummingbirds. Cindy, tell me about your hummingbird story. How did you come to be interested in hummingbirds and, and maybe some of the work you've done? Okay. Well, um, it all began. Um, well, I've always loved hummingbirds. They've always fascinated me. You know, these little guys zipping around your garden. But um, my real passion started in the early 2000s. Um, I... Um, of course, had hummingbird feeders hanging here at the house. And um, we saw that there was a hummingbird festival at Land Between the Lakes up in Kentucky. And Bob Sargent was going to be there banding hummingbirds and giving a talk about hummingbirds. And I'd long known about Bob. Bob was sort of the, the, the uh, hummingbird guru, uh, you know, the go-to guy about hummingbirds. And so I was very excited. We signed up and off we went. And I was just absolutely mesmerized and fascinated to stand there and watch him ban these birds um, and see them so up close and personal. And so I went up to him and I said, I want to do this. And he was very kind. And I'm sure he hears that hundreds of times in a session. But he was very kind and he told me exactly what I needed to do was to find a master hummingbird bander, volunteer with them, starting out doing the grunt work and then let them know of your interest and, and eventually be trained um, to do what he did or does. And um, so that's that I thought, well, okay, I can do that. Well, that really wasn't the time I had small children. You know, I couldn't devote a whole lot of time. I had small kids. I was showing dogs on the show circuit. It was just not the time. Um, so fast forward to fall of 2011. And um, I said, okay, now's the time. And so I uh, connected with a master bander in the Nashville area, volunteered to work with them and um, actually held my first hummingbird that fall, the fall of 2011. Um, and if you know anything about me, when I get passionate about something, I jump in with both feet, my head, my entire body. So it goes from zero to 100 very quickly. 
And that's where it all really began in 2011. Okay, so really 10 years of uh, give or take. Yep. Uh, and you have become uh, pretty immersed in that. Tell me, tell me some of the things you've done. Yeah, well, um, I had uh, to become a, a bander, a, a hummingbird bander. The best way is an apprenticeship. And so for four years, that's what I did. Um, literally drove thousands of miles a year to, in order to, to learn and to, um, you know, be able to handle birds. Um, and, um, and then as time went on, again, and in the meantime, I was also doing a lot of work with sandhill cranes and whooping cranes for the International Crane Foundation. Mm -hmm. And um, Bob heard about me um, through the, uh, my work with cranes. And so he contacted me, um, called me out of the blue one day and just said, um, we heard about you and we think that you would be a good fit for our Hummerbird study group. Uh, would you be interested in coming down in the spring and um, to Fort Morgan, Alabama and joining our banding crew for two weeks and um, see if you like what we do, see if we like you, so on and so forth. Well, that was such an honor. I just about fell out of the car. I was in the car when I got the call and mm -hmm. I was so excited. He's, and he said, take some time and think about it. And I said, I don't need to think about it. Yes, yes, yes. I'll be there. And so in the spring of, of that year, I think it was 2012, I joined their crew down at Fort Morgan, uh, where they had a migration banding se uh, station set up for two mm -hmm. weeks in the spring and two weeks in the fall and banded everything that um, came off the Gulf and everything that was getting ready to return over the Gulf and go down to the tropics. Now and this the, is pretty much ruby-throated hummingbirds, isn't it? Well, no, this was all birds, including oh, ruby-throated. Okay. Okay. So it was all birds. And at the time I was banding all birds as well as ruby-throated. So it was okay. two, two things were going on simultaneously. Um, Anyway, it, it finally culminated in me getting my uh, master hummingbird permit from the federal government um, in October of 2014. And that's when um, I really became immersed in hummingbirds. Um, and they've become my life, really. Okay. Well, hummingbirds are insanely cool. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but hummingbirds are pretty much a Western world phenomenon. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think there are hummingbirds in Europe or Africa or Asia. Is that correct? Correct. We call them a bird of the new world. The new uh, world. That's new world bird. Term. Correct. You new only find bird. them in um, no, uh, South, Central, and North America. Right. And we have a handful of species in North America, but nothing compared to what's in the tropics. Correct. There's about 330 different species of hummingbirds uh, that we know of. And I say that we know of because, you know, you're always discovering something new in some of those places in the tropics we don't um, get to very often. But there's about 330. And in North America here, we have 16 different species that we can claim to be ours, so to speak. And they are right. mostly they are mostly migratory species. Whereas the species of hummingbirds in the tropics are, they're non-migratory. They may, they may go from the bottom of the mountain to the top of the mountain or so on and so forth. But basically, they, you know, they are where they are um, in the yeah. tropics. I mean, elevational uh, movements are, I don't know how it is with your ruby throaters, but with our rufous hummingbirds here in Washington, that's 
pretty standard. They they come early. The males come in March. The females late March, early April, and and they set up the nest and they breed. And shortly after, I think when the eggs are laid or hatched or something, the males take off for the mountains and the females follow them shortly. And you really by you know early summer you only find them in the mountains all, pretty much, and then they're gone by August or so. so. Right. They and they are. Uh... Many of them, which is a whole other part of my study, come visit us here in Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana, and spend the winter with us here. Um, really, many? Yeah. I, yes. I didn't. Know. I knew some did. I didn't. I, w- I wouldn't have thought it was many. Cool. Yes, it's a growing. It's sort of it's growing over the years, and whether it's always been at the levels that we're seeing, um, because now we're studying them and and people are leaving feeders out. Um, mm-hmm. um, we're not quite sure, but um, it's been an ongoing 30-year study. So, very cool. Uh, so, uh, you uh, people from Tennessee and the the general South can uh, find uh, your uh, Rufus hummingbirds for your life list in the winter there, huh? Correct. In fact, I, there is one right now as we speak here in Montgomery County, Clarksville, where I live, uh, that has been at a feeder. Um, not my house, um, fortunately, but at um, a, a, a house not too far from here, actually, probably about three miles by the way the crow flies. Um, and that bird has been at that house since uh, Halloween. So, mm-hmm. and I expect that she'll stay there until it's time to um, head back to where she was born and uh, build a nest. I bet she will. Yeah. Uh, Winter uh, female hummingbirds. Oh, my goodness. I I, sometimes I don't even try. It's so difficult. It is. Yeah. Young and uh, and winter birds uh, or females in general are difficult. Yes. I I spent uh, a month last year in in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and uh, it was tough, you know, uh, ruby throated and, and black throated and Rufus. Oh, <laughs> yeah, black chinned. Yeah, yep. black chinned. Excuse me. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, very, uh, very challenging to, to identify. I mean, I think if you you know capture them and can look at some of the you know te- you know shapes of some of their outer tail Correct. feathers and things, you have a yeah. better chance or get exactly. a great photograph. Great photograph of a fan. Yeah, tail spread tails. But, Spread tails help. Um, yeah, but sometimes it does take in getting that bird in your hand and actually getting a measurement of that wing cord or of the, the bill, you know, to, to exactly know. Because those ruby, female ruby throats and female black-chinned hummingbirds on the wintering grounds, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference at a feeder. So, uh, Cynthia, I'm going to pick your brain as a bird bander. I know that, you know, I have the pile books and they sit primarily unused. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, bird banders and especially hummingbird banders have they, they have a way, a, a systematic way of, of analyzing a bird. Uh, so at, you tell me how you catch a hummingbird okay. and, to, to band and walk me through the process of exactly what you do. Okay. Well, as you know, hummingbirds are all about the food, right? They're all about their feeders. So the easiest way to catch a hummingbird is to put their feeder inside um, what looks like a large bird cage. And so the feeder hangs inside this, this wire cage which we have to make because you can't go buy them. So, um, cause all of our equipment is, as you can imagine, highly specialized. Um, let me start by saying, let me back up a minute and say, you have to have a federal as well as a state permit in order to do what I do. 
Um, and in order to obtain that permit, you have to have some sort of a research project because bird banding is, of course, scientific research. We're not just banding them for the fun of it. There's you, um, and so you have to go through the bird banding lab, which is part of the Department of the Interior, and you have to present to them a, you know, your research and they approve it or disapprove it. And then they give you your permit. So um, my, per, my research look is looking at migration um, in ruby throats um, and also, of course, the winter study that's been ongoing. So that's, that's how I got my permit. Okay. So um, anyway, back to it. So you have a, a, the cage, the bird cage, you hang the feeder inside and you hang it, it almost, you try to present the picture to the bird of what they're used to seeing when they come to your feeder. So you want it at the same height, um, you know, and so, and then the door is open and there's a clear view of that feeder as the bird approaches the trap. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in, um, we either have a fishing line that we have attached to the door, or um, if you're as clever as a friend of mine, um, uh, Gary Lockerman, who created what we call the Lockerman 2000, he's taken <laughs> apart a, um, a toy remote control car and retrofitted it for our traps. So we actually have a remote control. So we have a little button that we can press that closes the door. Well, very James Bondish. Very yes, cool. it's it's fun. It's great fun because it even works if you in the winter if you're standing inside. It works through the window, so that's kind mm. of fun as well. But warm um, while you warm while you catch them. Exactly, exactly. Because yeah. sometimes it can take a while. But um, so anyway, so the uh, so then the bird approaches the the uh, the trap, sees the feeder, and when when in a perfect world it just flies right in. You hit the button or you let go of the string, and the door drops and the bird's inside. And then you reach inside um, and you capture the, sometimes they fly right back into your hand, but you kind of cup the bird in your hand and you pull it out and you put it in a mesh bag, a soft mesh bag, cotton bag. Mm -hmm. And it has a little toggle on it and you, you know, uh, pull the toggle down so that it can't squirm out the top because they will get out if you don't put the toggle down. They're smart. And then you carry the, the bag back to the table uh, where the bander is sitting. Um, in this case, it might be me. And the first thing I'll do is reach in and pull out the bird and I'll take a look at it. And what I'm looking at to make sure it has, um, it's not, has not gaping or has its mouth open, you know, that it's stressed or, mm -hmm. and I'm going to look for a nice bright eye. And if the bird looks nice and healthy, then the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, see if I can tell what species it is. Sometimes I can tell right off. Of course, if it's here in, you know, high migration time in the middle of August, beginning of September, you know, it's a ruby throat. And then the next thing I do is put the bird in a toe of a pantyhose. Um, we take our pantyhose because this is the only, in my opinion, the only thing pantyhose are good for is for banding hummingbirds. And you cut off the toe, it makes a nice soft little cup where the bird just sits right in it, you know, lays right in it. Mm -hmm. That way you can hold on to the pantyhoe and not hold and not have the bird, you know, be holding on to the bird. So the bird's right. just laying in the nice little dark toe of the pantyhoe. And then um, the next thing I do is check each leg to see if there's a band on the, on the bird already. If right. there's a band on the bird, I just read that number to my scribe 
And then later we'll investigate, is it my bird? Is it somebody else's bird? Um, mm -hmm. But chances are it's not going to have a band on its leg. So then the next thing I do is put a band on its leg, a tiny little um, numbered band. It's got a letter and five numbers on it. And I put that on the leg of the bird. And then once it's on the bird, then I measure the wing. I measure the bill. Um, I uh, measure the tail. Um, and these using calipers or tiny little rulers all, all to make, take these measurements. Mm -hmm. And it's still, now it's still in the toe of this pantyhoe, you know, cause it's, um, and I, and I just maneuver it around in order to get the different measurements, expose the wing, expose the tail, expose the bill. Okay. And then, um, I'll use a, um, a drinking straw that's been cut in half and mm -hmm. just to blow the feathers aside to look for fat. That'll mm -hmm. tell me, um, is this bird getting ready to leave? Because birds don't normally carry fat, only when they're getting ready to migrate, because fat okay. is fuel. It's the fuel that enables them to make these journeys. And they don't, and like I said, they don't normally carry fat because fat is extra weight and birds don't carry extra weight. You know, it just makes it harder to fly around. Sure. So I'll blow on the bird and look for the fat. I'll grade the fat. Um, and then I'll, um, once we've done all that and then it's time to let the bird go. And you weigh so, them or pardon me. Did you weigh them somewhere? Oh yes, more? true. I do weigh them. I'm sorry. They will okay. get weighed, um, after they do get weighed and then, um, it's time to let them go. And if we're at a festival or if we have, um, the public watching, um, I'll usually allow someone in the crowd to let the bird go. And that's simply putting the bird in their open hand, using their mm -hmm. hand like a pedestal and just resting right. the bird there and letting the bird take off when it's ready to go. Mm -hmm. Um, people constantly ask if it stresses the bird. Um, it, you know, and I say, well, I, I believe that um, the bird believe I'm a predator and I've caught this bird. And so it's looking for any opportunity to get away. Um, sure. And once it gets away, it's won the day. Um, mm -hmm. I also point out that when we are normally at my mi migration stations and we're just banding birds, there's mm -hmm. been times where we've caught the same bird 13 times in a day. I'm sure there are. So if it was so terrible and so horrible, why would that bird come back 13 times? Well, one of the reasons is because the food, but yeah. it's because we we're efficient and we can do it. And when I'm at not talking and just doing it, I can band a bird, uh, a bird about every three minutes. Wow. So you're cooking. Yeah. I mean, yeah I mean, and, yeah. and I've, I've banded over 10,000 ruby throated hummingbirds. You are certainly familiar with that species then. Uh, did it, I've seen some species, and this is may not be related. Do you uh, is it like left leg female, right leg male, or something like that? With the way you band hummingbirds, or do you not have that sort of? No, the, I just consistently band on the right leg. That's what okay. I do. That way, if I get a bird in my hand that ha that has a band on the left leg, it it's like, oh, is this my it bird? Wasn't you. It wasn't you. It yeah. wasn't me. Now sometimes it is because if I do get a bird in my hand and there's Let's just say he's got uh, the bird has a, a cut or a, a swollen foot on in the on his right leg. I will not put the band on that leg. You sure. know, if the bird is healthy, otherwise I will have been known to put it on the left. And um, and sometimes we do get birds that are injured, and I do that, and then we catch that bird. Oh, a year later, two years later, and mm -hmm. the injury is completely healed. 
and you wonder why it's on the left leg till you go back and look at your field notes and you and right. note why. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what is the lifespan of a ruby throat hummingbird? I'm guessing not too many years. Uh, well, the ruby-throated hummingbirds, the oldest one we know about, lived to be nine years old. That's because oh, wow. we caught it as a hatchier bird or a bird that was, um, you know, the, the year of its birth. Mm-hmm. And um, then we, you know, continually caught it. And the last time we caught it, it was nine. Some of the other hummingbird species, like the rufus and the annas, um, live a, a bit longer. We have records up in, to 12 and 13 years. We had, really? And in fact, my friend Sue Heath in Texas, who bans, had a black-chinned hummingbird come to her feeder for 13 winters in a row. Oh, my goodness. That's, <laughs> that's amazing to think a bird that small lives that long. I, you know, Maybe I'm oversimplifying. I think of little birds don't live that long, big birds live longer. I think that's a feared, gross generalization, but wow. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty amazing to think about that and to think about the journeys that they make and the perils along the way that they live that long. Yeah. So do your hummingbirds uh, uh, in, you're in Tennessee, Tennessee, do your hummingbirds come across the Gulf or do they not? They do. They They do. do. They come across the Gulf and land on the coast, um, the Gulf coast. And then, um, and that is a, a 585 mile at the shortest point non-stop journey across the Gulf. Um, mm. And they land on the coast. And then if they were, let's just say that bird was born in, you know, Minnesota or Michigan, mm-hmm. they're right. going to then have another thousand plus miles to go to get back to where they were born. Because from banding um, with ruby throats, we have learned that they are extremely faithful to their breeding and their feeding um, grounds. So they're going to go oh. back to where they were born. Yeah. Do you said to the feeding grounds, did they go back to the same wintering ground area? They faithful to that too? They do. They wow. do. Mm-hmm. Now, Very when they cool. go down, we also have found out through banding that these ruby throats, the older, more experienced ones, they won't jump the water in the fall, um, mm. that they take the land route, that they oh. go down through Texas and down through Mexico that way. And, the, and we found that out because we have, you know, we'll ban birds in Alabama or Mississippi Mm -hmm. and those birds will get caught um, in the, you know, in the migration on the Texas coast. Well, what are they doing over there? They're, we, they're taking the land route because it's, they just meander. There's no big giant rush in the spring. There's a big rush to get to back to your breeding grounds to reproduce because there's a finite amount of time. So they take the shortest route possible, but in the fall, It's just a matter of wandering and finding food along the way. And, you know, and that's how come some of these birds do stay with us along the Gulf Coast. There's a big concentration of them along the Gulf Coast in the winter because they can make a living down there with our warming planet. They've, um, you know, they can find food. Yeah. Uh, So hummingbirds, uh, tell uh, a lot of listeners probably have heard uh, the whole story of uh, migration across the Gulf. But tell, tell I'm sure you know well the story of uh, how does a hummingbird, uh, you know, make it? How do they do it? Well, that's, they, essentially, they have to double their weight. Okay, so it's a matter of eating. Um, and that's why um, they're so, well, if you think about fall migration, when we see the largest number of birds here in the east, um, they are crazy. 
I mean, crazy at your feeders. People talk about how they fight and they, you know, how they buzz them and when they're bringing the food out, because it's all about the food, because it's all about getting fat, putting on that, um, that weight so that you can make those journeys. And then on the converse, when they're down in the tropics, you know, right about now, they're down there just eating ferociously to get fat. And we don't know what makes the day the day that um, are, is it because they're fat enough? It because they sense that the weather's right? We don't know, but um, they will, uh, as we get towards the end of February, into the beginning of March, they will get ready to launch off down there, um, down in the Yucatan Peninsula and make that journey across the Gulf. And it is a nonstop journey. They usually start about mid-morning lunchtime and fly all night and they won't get to land until the next day. It takes about 23 to 26 hours for them to make their journey. And once they start, they can't stop. No, there's no place to live. No. Not at all. Um, and so in terms of weight, I, I I could be off, but I think doesn't a, a, a hummingbird that start before they start, they weigh five or six grams, something in less that than range, that. Which, well, you know, of course, I'm talking ruby throats because that's what sure. I am most familiar with. Ruby throats weigh about three point two five grams. That's an okay. average weight, and mm-hmm. so that's less than a nickel. A nickel weighs a little over four grams. So if you, but if you put a nickel in your hand, that's about the average weight of a ruby throated hummingbird. So mm-hmm. they're going to double their weight up to about six grams. That's what um, I was thinking. I knew there were about five or six grams when they start and about three grams when they get over. Or less. We've had some down when we were on the coast, you know, that they weigh 2.5 grams, you know, that they're wow. just exhausted and they're hungry. Um, uh, and that's really when they hit the land there, that's what they're looking for food. So, sure. mm-hmm. yeah, after a big time recovery. So, um, I like to, at this point, talk, a lot of people think that these birds, if I, I'll put it this way. If I had a nickel for every person that told me that a hummingbird rode on the back of a goose and that's how they made their migration journeys, I'd be a rich person. It's oh sort goodness. of a myth that's out there and I'm not sure where it started or why it continues, but there is not a time goes by that I speak to people that someone doesn't say, I heard they ride on the back of a goose. Well, well it's they, a lot more plausible than flying all that way I by guess, themselves. I guess, but yes, no, they do not ride on the back of a goose. They make this journey by themselves and pretty much solo because hummingbirds do not fly in flocks. Not They're mm-hmm. not like geese or ducks where that fly in these big flocks. They do it on their own. They're very much a solo creature. Yeah, and and they, uh, I don't. They don't have mate fidelity, do they? No. As a matter of fact, a male's job is to mate with as many females as will have him, because oh. I like to say it's lady's choice. Okay. So she, he has to impress her. And um, yeah, no, there is no. They do not mate for life. They, there is no fidelity at all. They don't even mate for a season, it sounds like. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. The girls just want to have fun, I guess. I you know, yeah, well, the boys, the guys have the, the fun. The guys they, have the fun. They mate, mate and take off. Yeah. Correct. And so consequently, the lifespan of a male hummingbird is less than that of a female. Hmm. They're too busy uh, using all their energy, finding as many. Exactly. Or fighting or fighting. You know, they do a lot of 
fighting yeah. for that perch or fighting for that patch of flowers. Yes. Okay. So, uh, Cindy, you have, uh, I, I know you've uh, traveled some to bird. Uh, where have you been to look at hummingbirds? I, I'm assuming some of your travels to look at other hummingbirds. Right. Um, well, we've been to Panama a few times and we've been to Honduras. Um, we've been down to the lower Rio Grande. We've, we've been to Arizona. Um, we did have an incredible journey planned this past year to go to Ecuador just for hummingbirds. But of mm. course, with the pandemic, that got canceled. Yeah. Um, so we're, you know, as far as international travel goes, um, we are really just at the fledgling stage of that, um, my husband and myself. But um, mm -hmm. we've been a few places to, to check out the species. Good. I, I have not traveled a lot in the tropics, but I did go to Guatemala one, for one trip. And I think my favorite bird in Guatemala was a wine-throated hummingbird. I don't yes. know if you've seen that species, but little itsy bitsy hummingbird mm -hmm. and maybe three inches or something and then one of those lecking hummingbirds that uh you know the males perch up and make noise and right like, yeah like other other birds that uh you know the males gather and form a lek right just we stopped for lunch and this male uh uh one-third hummingbird was maybe eight or ten feet away and just prancing around on top of the bushes that was really cool yeah they're amazing hummingbirds are just incredible my uh there's two hummingbirds that i truly want to see before my days are over and one of them is the sword-billed hummingbird and mm -hmm. um i was going to have an opportunity to see that bird in ecuador and i'll get there um and then the other one is the the bee hummingbird and that that bird is in cuba and so I have to get to Cuba to see that one. But that is truly the smallest bird uh, species alive. He's only uh, 2.5 um, inches long. I mean, he's teeny tiny. Probably shorter than the bill of the sword bill. Uh, yeah, because the sword, uh, the sword bill's hummingbird, their bill's four, four inches long. I mean, it's yeah. incredible. So, pictures. Um, yeah. So those are Just the two crazy. that I'd like to see. Like I said, you know, if, if I could uh, wave a magic wand, those would be the two. Well, you probably don't need a magic wand, just time and money. Exactly. And, That's and, true. And COVID to finish. That's right. And so, no more COVID. Yeah. There yeah, you go. No more COVID. Good. So what what other birding have you, has interested you besides hummingbird uh, research and, and uh, uh, hummingbirds? Do you, are you a general birder or are you yes. pretty specialized? No. Uh, my husband and I, we're general birders. You know, we, uh, we're, we've been known to chase a rare bird in Tennessee or or wherever, and uh, we have life lists, and um, you know, and state lists. You know, we're not too, we're not like crazy listers, but we do have lists. Um, and uh, but as far as other species, you know, like I said, I was extremely interested in sandhill cranes. It's actually what got me started um, with birding about 20 years ago. Was seeing sandhill cranes, um, and um, I currently. Um, have a couple other projects. One is um, in conjunction, uh, it's a, it's a um, continent-wide study on saw-wet owls, which is the smallest owl we have here in yes. North America. Um, and um, so I'm part of that study, looking at them here in Tennessee uh, in the winter. Um, and then um, for the state of Tennessee, I have a contract with the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. Um, it's my only paid gig. Everything else that I do is volunteer, um, okay. is looking at loggerhead shrikes. 
um, because we have lost um, 70% of our population of loggerhead strikes here in Tennessee in the last 20 years. So we're trying to figure out why. So um, sort of working with them as well. Do do you have any clues? Is it uh, breeding habitat or wintering habitat or... Who knows? Uh, it's, it's, um, well, most of the birds that we have here are resident birds. So we do oh, have really? some that will migrate in, um, from the Northern States. Um, but the ones that, um, we, you know, a good portion of the ones we have here are a uh, year round and it, it's loss of habitat. Um, automobiles is a huge killer of, um, strikes. Um, they, because they swoop down, they have this habit of sitting up on a, um, electric line, and then they mm-hmm. see uh, their prey across the street. And instead of flying straight out, they swoop down to cross the street. So they're only mm-hmm. really about a foot off the road, and they oh. get clipped by cars. It's it's you wouldn't think that that a songbird, you know, that would, but that's you know, you got folks zipping down country roads where these birds hang out, and it's incredible how many we lose to automobiles. Hmm. But um, that anyway, must be yeah. their natural attack rope that they get. Yeah, it is. It is. Hunt by stealth it. that way. Yep, it is. It is. But anyway, though, so those are a few of the other other species that I um, sort of band and hang out with. Very cool. I I know that you uh, are the CEO of the Southeastern Avian Research Project. Tell us about that project. Okay. Well, um, Southeastern Avian Research was founded in um, 2014. Um, it, we, um, I established it um, to promote the conservation and preservation of hummingbirds and other neotropical migrants um, through my scientific study and, of course, education. Um, I'm really big into educating people about these species because if you don't love something, you're not going to work to protect it. So I like to um, uh, share my enthusiasm and love for the species with people um, and by educating them the best I can. And this uh, nonprofit was a way for me to do it. It is a 501c3. Um, I was uh, very lucky that the seed money for the nonprofit was gifted to me uh, by Bob and Martha Sargent um, to carry on and be their legacy moving forward um, to keep the research going. So uh, that's that's a little bit about us. Um, I do all this research work that I do under under the 501c3. Um, right. Like I said, it is all volunteer. Um, and pretty much uh, we operate through donations and gifts. And that just buys equipment, puts a little gas in the car every once in a while um, and, and things like that. So. Super cool. You you were not joking when you said when you get into something, you jump in feet first. Oh, my goodness. What exactly. A, what a passion. Yes. What a passion. Thank you for your work. That Thank is just you. super, super cool. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Very cool stuff. Uh, and uh, I I thought uh, since I've got a hummingbird expert on, on with me today, and so many of us feed hummingbirds, uh, that, that there are probably some uh, key mistakes we make. I know that not changing the, the food often enough and letting them get filthy is a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I know probably planting them, putting them too close to a window where they can smash into it's probably not cool. But what to, give us some, uh, some uh, 
expert advice on what we should do with our hummingbird feeders. Okay. Uh, and, and a lot of people ask me, what's the best feeder to buy? Where's the best place to put it? So on and so forth. And my answer is this. The best hummingbird feeder that you can buy is the one that you can keep the cleanest. Because keeping that feeder clean is what's one of the most important things you can do. We know that that black mold that grows on those feeders can harm hummingbirds. So you need to keep them clean. Um, and then you need to keep the nectar fresh. Um, uh, I recommend a ratio of four parts water to one part sugar. Uh, and that was something that I was taught. And it, it was it's not just a number we plucked out of the sky. It had to do with... Um, uh, we contacted uh, some botanists and said, give us the average sugar content or fruit, uh, sucrose content in flowers. And it, it roughly came to four to one. So that's where the four to one comes to. Um, and um, just keep that nectar clear and um, should never be cloudy. If it's starting to turn cloudy or has an odor to it, because clear sugar water doesn't really have an odor. If it starts to smell sour or it starts to turn cloudy, that means it's going bad and it's time to change it. So in the heat of summer here in Tennessee, we have quite hot, humid summers. I tell people they need to be changing their nectar about every other day. Okay. And if you, um, of course, the cooler it is, you could, you know, when you first in the spring, it may be able to stay out there a week. You know, it just depends. If it sits in the sun, if you hang them in the sun, of course, it's going to go bad sooner than if it's there in the shade. So it's mm -hmm. really just monitoring it. And if you change your nectar out every two days or every three days, you're never going to have to worry about black mold growing either because you're keeping things clean, you know. So that's right. one of my biggest things. Um, red dye. Please, if you remember nothing else from today, do not use red dye. It is not necessary, and we believe that it will that it harms the birds. We don't have any scientific studies that say yes, it truly harms them. But when I have a hummingbird in my hand, I can tell who's feeding red dye because their excrement is red, which means their bodies are not processing that red dye. Sure. So um, it's not necessary. And my motto is, if it's not necessary, why do it? So sure. um, don't use red dye. And then people say, well, why do they sell it? Well, they sell it because we buy it. So don't use it. Uh, it's just much easier to use white table sugar in that ratio of four to one. Make your own, um, whether you're making a quarter cup or whether you're making 10 gallons, make your own. Sure. Um, and as far as where to place a feeder, my advice is place it where you can enjoy your birds the most because we feed hummingbirds for our enjoyment. If we took up all the hummingbird feeders in all the world, these birds would be just fine. Um, we do it so we can watch them. And so put it where you can enjoy it, where you can monitor it, and where you can make sure that that nectar is clear and clean. Okay. I've, I've learned, and maybe this is... Uh... False. Somebody told me, and since I've started doing it, it's really made a difference, that I boil the water before I mix it with the sugar. And it seems like uh, before I did that, you know, three or four days, I'd have crummy looking water. And 
when I boil the water, it seems that it stays clear and fresh and I don't get the black mold as quick and that sort of thing. Is that fair or is that just uh, hearsay? Um, well, I don't boil my water, but okay. because I may, I have, you know, I, I have like 15 feeders that I maintain. So yeah. I don't need to be boiling water, you know, and the water comes out of my tap pretty hot at 130. So it's pretty, okay. you know, yeah. but, um, you know, it's up to you. You don't have to do it. What I tell folks, if you'll drink the water that comes out of your tap, then it's good enough for a hummingbird. And that's another okay. thing I tell folks too, when people look at me like I'm crazy. But if you won't drink what you put in your hummingbird um, feeders, then don't put it in there. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you don't want to go around making a habit of drinking sugar water. But, you know, I don't I, I think someone would uh, would drink their homemade sugar nectar rather than this red stuff out of that out of those bottles that we buy. And then that's my point. You know, if you don't drink it, don't feed it to your hummingbirds. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I just I just want to get back to banding birds. Okay. I I have I've not banded birds, and uh, I the thought of holding a what is it like to hold a hummingbird in your hand? I just can't imagine. I've read about hummingbirds, and I know there's incredible number of like uber cool facts about hummingbirds, and maybe I'll get you to tell us a few of those. But they have heartbeats that are in the hundreds and hundreds, like a thousand almost. Or yeah, twelve hundred. Uh, 1200 yeah. times a minute they, it's like a little motor actually um it well it's um it's intimidating at first um as you said because they are so tiny um but um it's amazing always i don't care i like i said i've banded over 10,000 of them every bird in my hand is an honor and a privilege um and and an exciting time for me it never gets old um it's, it's, you just, it's just a matter of learning. Um, and that's why you have to handle hundreds of birds before you, you can even apply for your permit. Uh, muscle memory is what we, we like to say. You've got to get to that point where you don't have to think about it. Sure. Sure. So what are some of your favorite, uh, humming, hummingbird, hummingbird trivia, uh, facts? You must have some. Um, let's see. Hummingbird trivia facts. Oh, okay. Well, the brilliant color of a hummingbird, um, it's uh, that the color, the feather is not truly that color. Okay. The pigmentation is, is uh, caused by a refraction of light. So if you think about a prism, that's what a hummingbird feather is like. Um, and depending on the light level and the moisture and the angle you're viewing and the wear and tear, um, mm -hmm. that will all, that will influence the color of hummingbird feather that is cool i i uh i am taking the uh taking i've been two years i haven't even finished it yet so saying taking it is probably not fair but the cornell uh one of the i think it's a bird biology course this yes. online uh -huh. course anyway they have a whole segment on that ch a chapter on that on color of feathers and that sort Correct. of thing and it has to do with the the placement of the little bubbles in the keratin molecules. Exactly. Bar exactly. Barbs and barbs that cause the color and the barbules that cause the iridescence. And it's just mind blowing stuff. Uh, maybe in the pot, in the uh, blog post I put up associated with this, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a story about how those collagen things are employed after I read yeah. that um, from memory. It's, it's this fabulous story. Yeah. But just, you know, the easiest thing for kids to understand is a prism, you know, how that creates the rainbow. And exactly. so that, you know, it's, it's a real good, um, 
uh, hands-on demonstration for them about how the, you know, the pigmentation in, of color in a feather. Yeah. So let's see. Hummingbirds can't walk, but they do oh. have legs and feet. I can't tell you how many folks would say to me, hummingbirds don't have legs and feet. And I'm like, well, how do they perch on a branch then? You know, um, but, um, and, um, and that, um, and, and they have evolved to have those smaller feet and shorter legs uh, because they're lighter and more efficient for flying. Sure. So, um, and they, but they'll use those feet for itching and preening. And I'm sure people have seen that. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see. Hummingbirds have um, anywhere from 900 to 1500 feathers. And that's the fewest number of feathers of any bird species in the world. Okay. And again, it has to do not just with their tiny size, but also with keeping them as lightweight and aerodynamic as possible. Uh, hummingbirds are the only bird that can fly backwards. Um, and we know that kestrels and um, other hunting birds can hover like hummingbirds, but they can't, cannot fly backwards, but hummingbirds can. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Uh, we've already said that the average hummingbird's heartbeat is about 1,200 beats per minute. Just insane. Yep. Um, they beat their wings in a figure eight motion, and that is 60 to 80 beats per second. Wow. So um, that's, um, that's pretty fast when you think about it. It is. Um, they, they lay the smallest eggs, of course, of any bird species, and those eggs are about the size of a tic-tac or a black-eyed pea. Um, hummingbirds only lay two eggs, no more than two, um, in a nest. And depending on where they are, in what part of the country, they could nest once, they could nest two, three times in a season. This is ruby-throated. Uh, no, yes, uh -huh, ruby-throats, but other species as well. But ruby throats mm -hmm. particularly. Okay. Um, let's see. They must consume about um, half of their weight in sugar daily, and in they sugar eat, not yeah. not in the not in liquid, but in sugar. Sugar. Uh huh. Oh my god! And eighty percent oh, wow. of their diet are insects. Lots of people don't know that. No one can live by sugar water alone. They need those insects for protein. Mm -hmm. And it's soft-bodied insects. They can't eat anything that has an exoskeleton like an ant or a beetle. They like those noceums or small spiders, you know, anything that's soft-bodied. Gushy. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's see. We already said there's more, more than 330 species of hummingbirds in the New World. Um, so what is your hummingbird life list so far? How many hummingbirds have you seen? it's not all that great. I um, mean, grand, I guess, but it's, it's somewhere, I think last time I looked, it was like 83. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah it's pretty good. I mean, I'm not complaining, but no. it's, you know, um, I had hoped to double it with my trip to Ecuador someday. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. um, let's see. There are a few hummingbird species. Your Anna's, your black chin, your Allen's, your Rufus, mm -hmm. Calliope and Broadtail they will hybridize with each other. And so mm -hmm. that makes it extremely challenging when you have, you know, you catch a hummingbird and it's like, uh-oh, this doesn't look like an anise and it doesn't look like a, you know, what is this? And, and then it's always the mystery to figure out the characteristics because they take on characteristics of both species, of course. Um, sure. But um, 
we don't you, we don't see that in ruby throats so i don't see that until winter um when these other birds show up um okay. let's see the calliope is the smallest hummingbird um in north america mm -hmm. um let's see what else um oh when it comes to banding um, the bands as you well imagine are very lightweight and pretty tiny and I like to tell children, you can take 5,500 of those tiny bands, put them in an envelope, and mail them with a first-class stamp. Hmm. Just in case you need a few thousand. That's right. And it, <laughs> and it takes 150 ruby-throated hummingbirds to weigh one pound. So you'd have to collect 150 ruby-throats just to weigh one pound. Are, are ruby throats preyed upon by, uh, 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 you know, bird-eating uh, falcons and hawks? I would guess maybe not. They're so small. Why bother? Yeah. Uh, their biggest predators are, um, uh, natural predators, are snakes, large okay. spiders, praying mantis. Mm -hmm. And not your native praying mantis, but the big Asian praying mantis. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, um, outdoor and feral cats is your number one killer of hummingbirds. Sure. But, but um, yeah, so there aren't very many. Hawks don't really, it's it's not that much of a meal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus, um, you know, hummingbirds are pretty mean. Um, people think they're these delicate little creatures. Well, they're not as delicate as you might think. They are. Um, Bob used to say, if hummingbirds were the size of hawks, we'd all be in a world of hurt. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... I have actually watched a Rufus hummingbird um, dive bomb a Harris hawk because he wanted the perch that the Harris hawk was sitting on and continue to do it until that hawk flew off. Um, and then that bird took over that perch and was just as proud as a peacock sitting up there preening. <laughs> proud as a hummingbird. That's right. Very so very they are, they're pretty, yeah, they are pretty ferocious birds. Uh, we talked about their wing beat 60 to 80 times per second. Um, they take an average of 250 breaths per minute. Um, let's see. Uh, Ruby-throated hummingbirds can fly. We talked about that nonstop across the Gulf. Um, I'm trying to uh, think of a few more things. Um, let's see. Uh, they can fly... Um, their maximum forward flight speed is about 30 miles per hour. But some of these birds can reach an excess of 60 to 80 miles per hour when they're doing their fancy uh, breeding uh, display, the males. Pushing displays, yes. Yeah, they can get, you know, go um, much faster and have, um, you know, they have just incredible adaptations for this unique kind of flight. They are spectacular. I know our... Our uh, uh, calliope hummingbirds make this incredible dive bomb. Uh, I know. Flight. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, some of our other hummingbirds do too. But yeah. Uber cool. Um, let's, and so that's, you know, that's about, those are, those yeah. are a few facts there, I guess. That's a, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of hummingbird trivia. Very cool, Cindy. I appreciate it so much. It's so fun for me to have the chance to talk to people who are just 
passionate about what they do. And you fall smack dab into that category. I have yeah. to say, I love it. I love talking to people who love what they do. And you can just feel that energy and enthusiasm in, in your voice. I, it's been such a joy to hear your story and uh, and hear about that. So if somebody wanted to support the Eastern, uh, excuse me, the Southeast Canadian Research Project, is there a website they could go to and donate to that or something? There is. Um, just www.southeasternavianresearch.org. All one okay. big long word um and yep and you can see uh some pictures there of um some winter birds and um there's a i have a small blog page and where i announce things and you can see some of the research that i am do ongoing research um yeah so you know check us out i'll make sure i uh, put a uh, link to that on the podcast notes thanks so much for being my guest today cindy i really appreciate it i won't call you cynthia so you won't think that i'm uh uh, and I'm in trouble, you. right? That you're in trouble. No, no Cynthia on this. Totally a Cindy podcast. You're in no trouble whatsoever. You're a fabulous <laughs> guest. I appreciate it. Thank you and so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate you hanging on. Uh, you have a great day and good luck with your uh, spring migration work this year. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. I've said this before, but I just love talking and meeting people who have a deep passion for the work that they do. Cindy's work with hummingbirds just burns with the passion she has for these creatures. I learned some things about hummingbirds today. I hope you did too. And I hope that as the episodes go by, I get to talk to more and more people who are just really into what they do. I'm into birding. I hope that you are too. And thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding and good day. <laughs>